Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Rick Moranis' first job was selling programs at hockey games for 75 cents a pop. I would do anything that I could to try and coax that 25-cent tip out of the 75 cents, you know, to to be able to get somebody to say, keep the change, which is really hard in Canada to get somebody to say, keep the change. (laughs) So I started doing shtick. You know, I started doing souvenir hot dogs, get your souvenir hot dogs, (laughs) ice-cold programs, hot Coca-Cola. Who wants a hot Coca-Cola? You know, stuff like that. It wasn't working. I didn't make any money. But we did get to uh, stay for the games if there were empty seats. It's a bullseye. Coming up, Rick Moranis was a movie star. Strange Brew, Ghostbusters, Spaceballs, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Then he quit. We'll talk about why he doesn't regret leaving show business to raise his kids. I applied all my creativity to my home life, to my kids, to my family. So when my kids came home, there was music and there were lights on and there were great smells coming out of the kitchen and it was just always a joyful place to be and that's what I wanted. That's what I wanted to create. Then I'll talk with Lily Tomlin about her story career. She's been in comedy since the 60s. She stars in Grace and Frankie now on Netflix. Before she was one of America's comedy greats, she was a cheerleader. Yes, really, a cheerleader. Because, you know, well, ladies and gentlemen and students, too. Well, here's a little cheer we're going to give to you. Hands up, touch to touch, a touch to touch. And that's not the only secret that we got out of her. God knows what I've said. Then, finally, a lot of rap is about bravado. We all know that. I'll tell you about one great song that talks about fear in a way that still gives me tremors. It's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. First up on the show, Rick Moranis. We talked in 2013. Rick Moranis made a career out of playing the put-upon. Nerds, dopes, sleezoids, schlemiels, schlemazels, Canadians. He brought the Argyle Sox community to life on screen. in Movies like Ghostbusters, Strange Brew, and Spaceballs, which just turned 30, by the way. Then, in the mid-90s, he quit. All of it. Since 1994's The Flintstones, he's barely worked at all. Last month, he made a rare appearance on stage. He and fellow SCTV alumnus Dave Thomas reprised their roles as Bob and Doug McKenzie for a one-night-only benefit in Toronto. So, why isn't he working more? Miranda says he was busy raising his kids. But since they've gotten grown, he's recorded two albums. The first... The Agoraphobic Cowboy was nominated for a Grammy. The most recent, released in 2013, is a group of lively comic songs with a Jewish theme. It's called My Mother's Brisket. Here's a little of the title track. The smell first hits me from five blocks away. It's Friday and I can't stay away. The Blue Jays are playing, but I won't likely risk it. I'm here with a plan to binge on her brisket. My mother's brisket So moist and tender Always sends me 
on another Shabbos bender. The onions and carrots look nice. I don't need them and potatoes, no dice. There are only two things that suffice, my mother and her brisket. My mother's brisket. So silky smooth. Whatever might happen all week, there's nothing quite... Rick Moranis, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you very much. This, is a, this will sound like a, a glib question, but I promise you it isn't. When you cut an entire record of uh, Jewish theme songs um, full of, uh, you know, full of Yiddish words, uh, often in choruses, do you find your voice tends to go go into a naturally into a sort of Yiddish uncle manner of speech? I don't know if the words put me in the voice or whether the voice put me into the words, but. Um, I do. I am playing a character when I'm singing these songs. Um, variations on a character, I should say. It's it's not me any more than the agoraphobic cowboy guy was me. I'm releasing these under my name, but they're very much written from a point of view and sung from a point of view. Who who is the guy that you're playing? Uh, I don't know. I've never met him. I just he just comes through sometimes. Did you uh, did you grow up in a big family, a, a small family? Did you have extended family around all the time? Yeah, I I have uh, one sister, so the nuclear family was small, but I had a large peripheral family, and um, everyone was kind of close enough that we spent a lot of time together. But I also grew up on a street with uh, tons of kids. Did you feel very Jewish as a kid? Was that an important part of your identity? I was. I didn't know what it was uh, particularly. I mean, I was. I grew up in a Jewish suburb of Toronto, so um, I didn't know that there was any other except that in a class in a public school class of thirty-two kids, there were only two kids who weren't Jewish who had to come to school on the holidays on the Jewish holidays, which I thought was really <laughs> really unfair to those kids. Um, but I did feel very Jewish. When I had to go to a lot of Hebrew school after school, I went to regular school from nine until three thirty or four, and then I had to go to Hebrew school for a couple hours, um, five days, five days a week. I never forgave my mother for that, which is one of the reasons I made this album was a little bit of revenge. And um, and I also went to a, a good amount of synagogue when I was a kid. So in those environments, I felt very Jewish. And it, and it was only much later that I realized how culturally Jewish we were being raised and um, how much of it would influence me. How did you how did you realize that? What was the first situation you got in that was, you know, outside of that world? I guess, you know, the very first job I had was selling programs at the hockey games at Maple Leaf Gardens when I was 12 or 13. And I think the buddy that got us the job and a couple of us that went down there to get the job, we were the only Jews in the place. So maybe that's where the, that that was the first place that I felt very uh, Jewish. That sounds like the greatest job a 13-year-old could ever have. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Um, the The problem was is that I was so low on the uh, in the hierarchy that I had to sell in the top seats which were called the grays 
And the book was 75 cents. I was really little. I could only carry 25 of them. And I had to climb a thousand stairs to get up to the grays. And, you know, you look at the ticket price and the number of people that had tried to sell these people programs on their way up to the grays. And I wasn't selling a lot of programs. So um, the odds were that if you did sell one, it would somebody would give you a dollar and I would do anything that I could to try and coax that 25 cent tip out of the 75 cents, you know, to, to be able to get somebody to say, keep the change, which is really hard in Canada to get somebody to say, keep the change. <laughs> so I started doing shtick. You know, I started doing souvenir hot dogs, get your souvenir hot dogs, <laughs> ice cold programs, hot Coca-Cola. Who wants a hot Coca-Cola? You know, stuff like that. It wasn't working. I didn't make any money. But we did get to uh, stay for the games if there were empty seats. And that was still in the era of the original six teams in the NHL, and I got to see Bobby Orr all the time. And then I was there the night that the Minnesota North Stars skated on the ice at Toronto Maple Leaf Gardens in 19, I think it was 67, in their, oh God, fluorescent green shorts, and that was the beginning of the end of hockey as we knew it. <laughs> well, was that the beginning of your show business career? Did you, did you like, have any relatives or know anyone who worked in entertainment? No, entertainment was something that to me was done in the States. I, I had no idea that it was something that you could even think about doing for a living growing up in Canada. And I don't know why that is. I think it might have had to do with the fact that when you watched television in Toronto in those days, the very clear picture on the CBC or CTV was hockey or ballet or documentaries on hedgehogs or whatever it was. And the very fuzzy, fuzzy picture was Lucy and Dick Van Dyke and Phil Silvers and all this hilarious great stuff. And so it just seemed very remote. And... I guess the first indicator that there was life outside of that was really the British invasion. You know, the, the idea that's, that people from a group from England could be on the radio, not just American groups. And, and that sort of changed the calculus a little bit. But, no, it wasn't until much, much later that I had any inkling that I could actually leave Canada and, and um, try and be in show business. Did you have any secret Canadian entertainment or, or comedy heroes that I would know nothing about because I'm American? Um, well, you might not know about Hart Pomerantz. Hart Pomerantz was, uh, you know who Lorne Michaels is. And before Lorne Michaels came to the States and uh, created Saturday Night Live, he was a writer for a while in, uh, in Los Angeles on various shows, I, I'm pretty sure. But before that, he was part of a comedy team. And he was primarily the straight man, and the funny guy was Hart Pomerantz. And Hart was the, the first guy, a little bit older than my generation, but he was the first guy that I really recognized as being a local guy who was very funny. Um, and then there were, you know, some of the DJs were, were, were funny, and um, beyond that, you know, there there weren't too many people that I related to. You actually started your entertainment career as a as a radio guy, didn't you? Yeah, I got a job at a radio station when I was still in high school, spinning records for the DJs. They called us operators, so they didn't have to pay us a lot. And um, the first radio station I worked at was a middle of the road station. 
um, playing, you know, the, the Andy Williams and the Ed Ames and Montavani and Percy Faith. And that was on AM. FM was, uh, was also, the, the overnight show was classical, and the rest of the day was heavy MOR, you know, shows like Candlelight and Wine in the evening and Car- <laughs> Carousel in the afternoon. And those were voice tracks that we operated, and we inserted the music and logged in the commercials and stuff. And then um, the radio station I was working at changed format and became a rock station, and all the staff changed, and it got very, very exciting. And that's when some American personalities came in and started to be the DJs, and I was on the board spinning the records, and I would kind of tell them what to say just because I would think of things. And I didn't know that that was called writing, but um, one thing led to another, and the program director suggested that I go on the air. So he gave me the all-night show at the at the age of 19, and I was pretty freaked out about it for a long time. I mean, Give I, me, Tell me what you wrote for these DJs? Like, what were oh, just, you writing them bits? No, well, it was, at that time, it was very much non-personality radio. It was all about how much music you could fit into the hour. One station would say, with up to 52 minutes of music this hour, with up to 68 minutes of music this hour, they would just do anything <laughs> they could to beat the other station. So, um... That's beca- a metric hour? Yeah, because of that... Um, you really just went from one song to the next, and there was only the intro time before the vocal came in on the on the song where the DJ could talk. But I would sort of just look at the title and figure something that was in the news or come up with a turn of phrase or something and just suggest it. And, you know, sometimes they would take it and sometimes they didn't. I, the first time I went on microphone, I was reading a public service announcement on my college radio station, and I messed it up. And then I said a word you're not allowed to say on the radio, but I was on the radio live, and it's indelibly imprinted upon my brain. Do you remember the first time you went on mic live? Um, I th- I do and I don't because I I think I com- I think I deliberately blocked it out because it was so bad. <laughs> But I didn't have that traumatic type of experience that you did. I had a terrible, you know, they call them faults when you screw up on live radio and we had to keep a fault book. And there was this huge, huge crisis, serious news thing that happened. And the newsman came in and gave me two sound carts. That's in the days of tape. And um, and I didn't have a toggle flipped. And the news came on. There were two reports. The news came on and said, and now we go live to Ottawa for this report dead air and then uh, and now we go we go live to montreal for this report dead air and they said the weather in a moment dead air because i didn't have the toggle and he, and then he then he gave the weather 30 seconds later and i i mean it was bad i thought i was going to be fired i wasn't but i had to write a novel into the fault book explaining what had happened it's bullseye i'm jesse thorne i'm talking with rick moranis he and i spoke in 2013 most of the folks um on in the cast of SCTV had come out of the second city and you didn't uh how did you end up on TV with them uh they were entering their third season and um the show was i think faltering a little bit and people were kind of mutinying and um, moving on with with things and John Candy left to do his own series on another network and Eugene Levy and Andrea Martin decided to go part-time. They were coming to Los Angeles to see if they could get things going, and they were going to do a few shows. And Catherine O'Hara left, 
and um, and Harold Ramis uh, started doing movies. So he was gone. And they were you know, recruiting, trying to fill some gaps from within the theater company. And um, Dave, I ran into Dave Thomas. I met him. He saw something that I did, and he invited me to do the show. And that's how I wound up uh, on that third season. I want to play a clip that I just ran into this morning on YouTube. This is from 1980, which is the year that you started on SCTV, but it's not from SCTV. It's from a CBC pilot. Um, and one of the things that I really liked about it was that you are playing a character that is um, basically the exact opposite of the uh, kind of nerds and schmoes that uh, you became famous for playing. Um, you're a movie producer, a Canadian movie producer, a young one who has, just to describe the visual of this, just an astonishing volume of cocaine on his face. It's actually toothpaste. Oh, <laughs> excuse me. Sorry. Sorry to disappoint you. It's toothpaste. <laughs> well, it appears to be, it is what appears to be cocaine. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, well, either way, it works on radio because, you know, you, you, you can call it what you want to call it. <laughs> Let's take a listen. Good morning. Hi, how are you? Very nice to meet you. What time is it? It's 10 a.m. and it's time for our interview. You you came on time. It's the first yeah. time television's been on time. Let me put my... You're right, it's 10 o'clock. This is an original car shake. That's fabulous. I paid 350 for this. They're worth 1500 Look at all these people in my house. I don't believe it. Stephen, can I have an Irish coffee to go? To stay, to go. Do you want one, dear? No, we'll thanks, Bernie. We'll have one. Listen, you'll bleep this out. I have a tendency to use some words. Don't, you know what don't I'm worry. We can clean it up. In okay, Stephen, I need a cigarette. He's a very cooperative young man. We're writing a very, very big film together. Okay, Sorry, thank you, dear. The CRTC, mm-hmm. the CFTC... The CCCC, all of them, they don't know how to produce films. Get it out of the public sector. Get it into the private sector. They know how to... Thank you. They know how to... They know how to build highways, but they can't make movies. They know from from the Group of Seven, but do they know from the Magnificent Seven? I got a cat in the hospital. Mm -hmm. It's costing me $60 a day. I could put him in the Hyatt for 50. (laughs) I know you were doing stand-up. Were you doing characters in your stand-up? I did stand-up very briefly. It wasn't something I really enjoyed. And uh, I used my guitar, and I did a lot of non-sequiturs, a lot of unrelated little bits. And it was it was several months into it that somebody said to me, hey, you know, you're a lot like – have you ever seen Steve Martin? He, you're a lot like him. Well, he was much better than I was, needless to say. But there was a similarity in the fact that he had his banjo. He was working with his banjo and doing sort of disjointed bits about different things and launching into music and then stopping and doing a line and not developing um, anecdotes, monologues, stories, whatever kind of thing, and not doing observational stuff like many people were doing at that time. I wasn't doing that. I was doing similar kinds of stuff to him. Occasionally I would flip into a character if I went down a path like that, but... um, not often. I didn't get. I didn't really get into character work until I started doing uh, radio series at the CBC and um, that pilot and some sketches I did. That those were all done with uh, that pilot and the radio series were done with Ken Finkelman. He was doing a style of video editing in that scene and in that pilot. That was 1980. That became popular many, many years later, that kind of jump cutting. He just thought, why not? You know, nobody was doing that at the time. I certainly hadn't seen anybody do it. And he also anticipated um, the sort of uh, 
the comedy of discomfort and faux documentary style in in his really great Canadian show, The Newsroom. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, and uh, some of the some of the seeds of that um, I got to see in the work that that uh, we were doing together um, as far back as the the mid seventies on uh, radio series at the CBC too. I read somewhere that you, while you were while you were still a stand up, flew out to Los Angeles uh, to try and break into the L.A. stand up scene, and in fact, auditioned for Mitzi Shore. Is that the case? Yeah, I went to. Uh, I had no idea what was involved, and I didn't have immigration. I didn't have representation. I had nothing except an act and a guitar, and. I just thought you could go to the comedy store on a Monday night and she'd see you. So I went to the comedy store and these two guys um, were running the amateur night and they just told me, oh, we're booked up for weeks. Come back in you know three months. And I was like, what? No, no, you don't understand. I, I, I do this. I have a knack. They wanted no part of me. So I just waited and I saw this little E-type Jaguar convertible with a blonde pull into the parking lot. And I followed it into the parking lot, and I said, are you Mitzi? And she looked at me, and first I guess she thought that there was a machine gun in the, uh, in the guitar case, and then she looked at me and figured, oh, he's harmless. And she said, yes. <laughs> and I said, listen, I'm from Toronto. I actually have an act, and I do this up there. And do you think you could look at me? Because I can't stick around for as long as these guys want me to. And she said, well, I'll look at you tonight. Tell them to put you on. And I went back in and I said, Mitzi says that I'm on at whatever time. And these guys didn't know whether to kill me or, or, or whether to suck up to me at that point. But anyway, I went on and, um, and I had an act. So I, you know, I made the audience laugh and she started using me. How about that for a word? In, um, at, on the strip and at the, at, uh, the club in Westwood. And I, I lasted for a couple of weeks. I made the mistake of asking her for bus fare one night because I was playing in Westwood and then she wanted me to host on the strip. And I called her up and I said, listen, I don't have a car. Uh, can you give me cab fare or bus fare? She said, we don't pay. And that was it. I went to the airport and went home and fortunately didn't stop working. <laughs> um, was it intimidating to go from doing stand-up, doing radio and, and pilots in Canada to to entering the cast of SCTV when it was already a pretty hugely successful operation? No, I wasn't uh, intimidated at all. Uh, it was a great outlet for me, and I really had incredible chemistry with Dave, especially that first year, and we just we just didn't stop writing. We just wrote a ton of stuff together and produced a lot of things together. And um, and it was the it was that season and the success of that season that um, they got NBC interested in picking up the show. And then everybody came back. Catherine came back. John came back. Eugene and Andrea came back full time. And that was exciting. I mean, I, there were days that I was pinching myself. I couldn't believe I was working with these people. It was really, really exciting. You did a lot of stuff on the show with Dave Thomas and probably the most famous, maybe even the most famous sketches from the show's entire run uh, were your roles as Bob and Doug McKenzie. So I, I want to play a clip from one of the Bob and Doug sketches. Um, and if folks don't remember, Bob and Doug were um, basically a, a compilation of every stereotype about rural Canadians that existed 
um, in 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 the form of two guys in lumberjack t- in lumberjack shirts. Okay, good day. Welcome to the Great White North. Go. Go again. Beautiful. Okay, good day. Welcome to the Great White North. I'm Bob McKenzie. This is my brother Doug. How's it going, eh? And whoa, did you hear about? What? Well, you can tell. Okay, you hear about the guy who like uh, was opening a beer, eh, and like went to drink and then did the stupid thing of looking in the bottle and whoa. There's a mouse in his bottle, eh? Real, real, real mouse. Well, I guess it, it was dead, right? Drowned from yeah. here. And drunk, too. Drowned like it, happy, it, died too. From, it had a smile on its face, eh? It died he from drunk driving in the bottle. But you know what the guy got? Tell him. A whole case of beer. Right. So our topic today is how to stuff a mouse into a beer bottle without, uh, without breaking it. The its, bottle. Its bones. Right. So that they'll look at it and give you a case and not think you hose them by... Uh, by deliberately stuffing one in, eh? It's like shipbuilding in a bottle, okay? Right. Were, were Bob and Doug really a response to CanCon, to Canadian content requirements? Yeah, very much so. Very, that's exactly how they were created, why they were created. Um, I had been doing a lot of uh, satire before that on Canadian content regulations, which I, I my knee-jerk reaction to this government mandate was to satirize it. I, I thought the government had no business legislating the arts. And we should we should explain for Americans who are listening that in in Canadian broadcasting, a certain amount of the content, depending on the outlet, has to be uh, of Canadian origin and uh, in some cases has to have Canadian-themed content represent Canada. Right, right. And it, what it is is it's cultural protectionism. And, you know, I mean, there there's protectionism in a lot of different industries, but the industry lobbies the government and the government puts on import quotas and taxes and whatever. But for the government to do it to the arts, it didn't make sense to me. In retrospect, I have no idea whether I was right or wrong or who got the last laugh. I have no idea. Um, but at the time, I was doing a lot of satire of it. And the the third season of the show which which was the season that i joined was um was not on independent television uh it was on the cbc and it was syndicated in the states to uh independent television which had uh 6 minutes of commercials so it was therefore a 24 minute half hour and um the one in in canada was a 26 minute half hour and the producers came into the room and they said with the extra 2 minutes the cbc uh, wants you to do something Canadian. And I was appalled by this because it didn't matter what we did. We were Canadian. We were in Canada. Everything that we were doing was therefore Canadian. And I said, that's crazy. What do you want us to do? Is sit in front of a map of Canada, put on toque and, and parkas and snow boots <laughs> and fry back bacon and drink beer and talk like this, eh? And he said, sure, sure, do that. <laughs> so we did. And... um you know, I, ironically, of all the stuff that was done on that show, and there were, there was a lot of really interesting work done on that show that a lot of care was put into, a lot of writing and production and design and performance and editing and 
and on and on and on. A lot of work. And this thing was a throwaway. It was one camera. There, it wasn't even a crew. The crew went home, and one guy <laughs> stayed there with one camera on us, and we improvised the thing. And that was the thing that came out of the show. You know, I, I, I felt bad about it. It, it, uh, it. it wasn't fair to the other cast members and to the other work that we were doing. On the other hand, it was an incredible amount of success that Dave and I had. The movie that uh, uh, that the two of you made, Strange Brew, ended up being the year's highest grossing film in Canada, and <laughs> that's right. And had a fair uh, had a fair fair amount of success um, in the United States as well. Well, Elsinore, twelve. 24. Oh, yeah, sorry. 24 Elsinore beers. 24. Yeah. 24 Elsinore. 1470. I believe there'll be no charge on this two for uh, a beer, thank you. Excuse me? Okay. We found this mouse in a bottle of Elsinore beer that we bought at your beer store, eh? And we heard, like, when that happens that uh, you get your beer free. It's in the Canadian criminal code, eh? Yeah. Like, there's legal precedent setting cases in law. So, like, uh, give us our free beer. You want free beer? Go to the brewery. Now get out of here before I put the two of you in a bottle. You know, those characters are immensely beloved. Um, You know, not just in Canada, but especially in Canada. Um, Do you you feel weird about them being taken... you know this this sort of satir this sort of satire of a requirement of being Canadian being taken as in basically exactly the opposite way as a celebration of everything that's special about Canada. Well, that's precisely what I mean about not really understanding after all these years exactly what happened. Here I was satirizing Canadian content, and I become it, and <laughs> that's exactly what the government intended was for something to emerge out of Canada to really put it on the map. And that's the <laughs> thing that winds up emerging. So it's, it really is bizarre and at the same time sort of perfect. After a break, Rick Moranis talks about why he basically left show business behind and what it might take to get him back on screen. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. We'd like to say a quick thank you and share a message from one of our sponsors, Stoke Cold Brew Coffee. If you're serious about coffee, good news, so are Stoke. They are obsessed with getting the perfect balance of bold and smooth and a taste that's not too sweet. It's the kind of thing that coffee drinkers dream of. You need the right beans, the right grind. You need a slow, cool brew. Find it in the refrigerated juice section. Stoke Cold Brew Coffee. Look at you go. Hey, y'all. Sam Sanders here. My new podcast is called It's Been a Minute. That's another way of saying let's catch up. Every Friday, I'll sit down with two guests, smart talkers from inside and outside NPR, to catch up on the week of news and culture, everything. If you can't stop watching the news, but you're also exhausted by doing that, this show is for you. Don't miss out. Find It's Been a Minute now on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcast. Thanks. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest this week is Rick Moranis. He starred in Ghostbusters, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, My Blue Heaven, and then in the mid-1990s, he basically stopped working completely. He and I talk in 2013. 
when you became a movie star, uh, which you did in the in the mid nineteen eighties, did you like it? Um, you know, when when it happens to you, you're inside of a bubble, and that becomes your reality. So, I was really busy. I was working with great people. I was having a fantastic time. How could I not like it? But when you get outside of the bubble and and try and live any kind of normal life, then you feel the effects of the stardom. Um, But, you know, if you're in your hotel and you're picked up by a car and then you're delivered at the studio and that's your life, you have no interaction. You have no perspective on what it's like. I want to ask you a, a slightly personal question. And if anything is too personal, just let me know. Your wife died when your kids were quite young, um, and she was ill before she died. And I wonder what it was like to try and recalibrate your life around a new set of facts. You know, I think show business kind of assumes that show business is the most important thing, and so it can be hard to change your priorities when you're in show business. Well, I'm... Stuff happens to people every day, and they make adjustments in their lives um, for all kinds of reasons. And um, there was nothing unusual about um, what happened or or what I did. Um, I think the reason that people were intrigued by the decisions I was making and sometimes seemed to have almost admiration for it had less to do with the fact that I was doing what I was doing and more to do with what they thought I was walking away from, as if what I was walking away from had far greater value than anything else that one might. The decision in my case to become a stay-at-home dad, which people do all the time, um, I guess wouldn't have meant as much to people if I had had a very simple kind of make-a-living existence and decided, you know what, I need to spend more time at home. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this part-time and then work out of my house to do this and this and this. Nobody would pay any attention to it. But because I came from celebrity and fame and what and what was a peak of a career, that was intriguing to people. And to me, it wasn't that. It wasn't anything to do with that. It was just work, and it was time to make an adjustment. I think also, you know, your career was a creative career. And so in part, you were walking away, not just from being famous and rich, but also from making stuff, which you had previously dedicated a a huge part of your life to. I didn't walk away from that. I applied all my creativity to my home life, to my kids, to my family. I I was the same person. I didn't change. I just um, shifted my focus. What did you miss about your um, your previous life when when you were raising your kids? Um, I'm I missed the people, and um, I missed the the very refreshing nature of doing something radically different every day. Raising kids and being a stay at home parent, especially a single stay at home single parent is there's a lot of sameness. It's a very different kind of life than being on a set with Aykroyd and Murray and Steve Martin, you know, obviously. And so I missed that kind of thing. But I found lots of joy and lots of rewards in other places. It was just all part of an adjustment. 
when when your kids got old enough to um to understand your previous career what did they what did they think about it i mean partly just what did, did they did they like your movies but partly like what did they think about the fact that they had this stay-at-home dad who had weirdly been a movie star when they were little tiny kids and before they were born i don't think that was how they perceived it um I don't I can't be sure but my my earliest memories are of being with them in public situations where people would get all excited because they were seeing a famous person and it was me and my kids just like were like why are you so excited it's just him so they <laughs> they had a really good perspective on celebrity and fame very very early on and I actually tell this story all the time. I took my son, he was really young, to a basketball game at Madison Square Garden. And sitting in front of us was Derek Jeter. And he was sitting, actually, and this is way, way before Alex Rodriguez was going to be on the New York Yankees. He was sitting with Alex Rodriguez. I didn't know. I knew who Jeter was. I had no idea. My kid knew it all. I think he was four or something or five. And um, they had just... He he really followed the Yankees closely, and they had just hired Chuck Knobloch or something to play second base. And so Derek Jeter turned around, recognized me, got kind of like, oh, hi, hi. And I went, hi. And my son said, have you met Chuck Knobloch yet? And, <laughs> and Jeter looked at him like, who is this kid? But, but that was my son. He was just comfortable around anybody. And I think the reason he was was because he just didn't buy why people were getting excited around me. Did you think about, like, what you wanted your family life to be like? I mean, there's not, um, I mean, I don't know if you knew other single dads who were, uh, who were raising kids by themselves, but did you, did you have to like create a template for yourself based on, you know, forethought? I happen to have had a, a really, really happy, wonderful childhood. And I think if you do, you try and recreate a lot of it. And if you don't, you try and not make those mistakes. <laughs> so I was trying to recreate a lot of um, the joy that I experienced as a kid and do it in a slightly different context because it was you know, years later, 30 years later or whatever. And it was New York City as opposed to the suburbs of Toronto. Kind of decided... To follow the adage of 90% or whatever of success is, is, is showing up or being there. And I found that to be true, that just being there was, was the best thing that I could do. That's what I experienced with my mother at home all the time. And so when my kids came home, there was music and there were lights on and there were great smells coming out of the kitchen. And it was just always a joyful place to be. And that's what I wanted. That's what I wanted to create. Do you think that you might like to return to show business? I mean, I'm sure that um, if you wanted to go out and audition, you could either be, you know, getting parts in movies or um, playing someone's uh, someone's dad on a sitcom pilot if you wanted to. And, and your kids are now grown-ups. I've never had a plan. I've never ever thought, had any forethought about anything I've ever done. I've just kind of looked at opportunities, said no to most things, and Sometimes whatever was left standing was the thing that I went for, and sometimes something came along that was so appealing I just jumped at it. Usually it was driven by the the people that were involved more than anything else. There are other factors now. I mean, I'm I'm 
comfortable where I live. There are certain locations I'm not interested in being, um, and and I, I'm not interested in doing anything I've done in the past. But in terms of being on camera, I have no idea. It's not something I've given any thought to at all. I mean, the only reason that I'm doing interviews is because <laughs> I let this record company talk me into releasing this album, and so now I'm doing interviews, and that's just part of the process. But the driver for that was writing a bunch of songs and being talked into recording them by friends of mine. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comic actor Rick Moranis. I want to play uh, another song from your album. It's called The Seven Days of Shiva. Can you tell us a little bit about it before we play it? Well, the uh, a Shiva is, uh, the, the word Shiva means seven, and the, a Shiva is the seven-day mourning period after someone dies. And, you know, obviously if it's a, a tragedy, it's there to comfort the mourners. But, you know, oftentimes it's some old person that has been around and, you know, it's just better, it was going to happen, and they die, whatever, whatever. And Shivas become, they just become all about food. And there's a reason for that. You know, people want to comfort people, and the, the easiest way to comfort somebody is to, is to give them food, to, to share in, in, in what you can. You bring them your, your, your bounty. You bring them your food. And growing up, I used to hear my mother on the phone talking to her sisters, talking about sending in a meal to someone who had, whose father or mother had passed. And um, they'd be going, what do you mean we can't get a dinner? We got a lunch. And they, they would always, always be about the food. And then when we lost my father and I was on the other side of being at a shiva and, uh, and experienced this, I, it was just this never-ending amount of catering that was just coming in <laughs> constantly. So that's why I did this song and, and I used the familiar melody to frame it. Let's take a listen. On the first day of Shiva, the Stolberg sent in The biggest potato kugel I've ever seen On the second day of Shiva, the Katzman's had delivered Two terrines of borscht and a bigger potato kugel than the Stolberg's On the third day of Shiva, the apple bomb sent over Three steamed pastrami's, two terrines of borscht, and an even bigger potato kugel than the Stulbers or the Katzmans. On the fourth day of Shiva, the Resnicks came and brought four pickled tongues. Three steamed pastrami's, two terrines of borscht, and we had to leave their kugel in the hall. All those names were people, were families on the street I grew up on. I I hope on that street they're laughing. Rick, I don't have the money uh, to finance a Ghostbusters sequel. (laughs) I don't Um, think anybody does. I'm sad sad to say I I wish I did. Um, However, I think I could probably get... I could get rights... To, I'm looking at the IMDb. Big Bully, maybe Big Bully. Yeah, that'd be. Easy. I was thinking Big Bully. How about crowd f- uh, funding of Ghostbusters Three? Would that be possible? Maybe we should crowdfund Big Bully Two first as a test project. I don't think you need a crowd. I think. <laughs> um, Rick Moranis, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on. Bullseye. Thanks for having um, me. 
it, it was really great to have you on the show and and I hope for and I hope for all of our sakes that um except possibly yours I guess we'd have to see that we get to see you performing sometime soon now that you've got some time on your hands um well we'll see what happens um trying to talk the record company into doing a video of one of the songs but i don't know if that'll happen or not (laughs) maybe crowdfunding maybe there's room in that crowd this is the place is it what you expected you should have seen all the ones i rejected Cozy and comfy, what I humbly call home But the truth is a man shouldn't be alone Don't be confused, there is nothing to decide Consider it insisted, you're coming inside Rick Moranis, everybody. His two albums are available now. And and hey, how about this? He doesn't really have anything to plug, but go watch a Rick Moranis movie. That guy's great. He'll get a penny or something. You're in the home of a man. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're listening to some of my favorite Bullseye interviews of all time. Next up, Lily Tomlin, one of the absolute greats of American comedy. She's got two Tonys, six Emmys, two Peabody's, a Grammy, and... She was nominated for an Oscar. In 2003, she won the Mark Twain Prize for American Humor. It is a pretty solid list. She's worked in TV on shows like Laugh-In and The West Wing and films like Nashville and Flirting with Disaster and on stage in acclaimed works like The Search for Signs of Intelligent Life in the Universe, which was written by her life and creative partner of almost 45 years, Jane Wagner. These days, she's starring on the Netflix show, Grace and Frankie. It's entering its fourth season next year, and Lily just got her third Emmy nomination for her role in it. When I talked with her in 2013, she was promoting her film, Admission. In it, she played Tina Fey's free-spirited second-wave feminist mother, a woman who chops her own wood, fixes her own bike, and has a big tattoo of Bella Abzug on her bicep. In this scene from the movie, Tina Fey's character, Portia, has just let herself into her mom's house a little unexpectedly. Mom? It's me! Who? How many people call you mom? Why didn't you tell me you were coming? I left a message. I was visiting a school nearby. I never check my messages. That's a good policy. Thought I'd spend the night, if it's all right with you. I've... Got to get up very early and then hit a few schools and race back for Mark's department lunch. How can you stand those English department gatherings? What could be more dull? Sometimes you make sacrifices for the person you've been living with for 10 years. That's what a healthy relationship is, Mom. (laughs) Thank God I'm not in one of those. Yes, thank God. If I had to do what I'm supposed to be doing every minute of my life like you do, I'd kill myself. Did you just say if you were me, you would kill yourself? Portia, don't exaggerate. <laughs> Lily Tomlin, welcome to Bullseye. It's really great to have you on the show. Thanks, Jesse. Nice to be here. Um, so I want to I want to start by asking you about the Bella Abzug tattoo. Was that in the script? Where where did that come into this uh, process? Well, in, initially, I had uh, because my character has had a double mastectomy. I um, I originally wanted to make a breastplate, you know, as if I had a mastectomy, and and tattoo that huge elaborate tattoo. And then I 
was going to try to persuade the director to let me be chopping wood shirtless <laughs> in the yard. Well, I couldn't – getting a breastplate done and everything was – I was short on time. So I settled in my mind for a Bella <laughs> tattoo. <laughs> I read somewhere – and this, this uh, was stunning to me, left me gobsmacked, that you were a cheerleader. Mm-hmm. When were you a cheerleader? High school. Um, that would be in the 50s, in the mid-late 50s, like 55, 56, 57. <laughs> and I was the captain. I was a co-captain, really. Really? Oh, yeah. But I went to a very soulful high school, a high school that, you know, we if we – I mean, it would be embarrassing if a, like an all-white school cheered against us because they would be so so square and so rah-rah. And, of course, we were way down. We really got down and – Rock the for example, basketball court. For example? Well, just, you know, well, it, we just did soulful cheers. Like, you know, we'd, you know, let's go, cast tech, let's go, bum, bum. Let's go, cast tech, let's go, bum, bum. Off the floor and out the door, let's go, cast tech, let's go. And uh, we, but our, our most famous cheer was touchy touch. Well, how does touch it touch go? Well, it goes, you know, well, ladies and gentlemen and students, too. Well, here's a little cheer we're going to give to you. Hands up, touch to touch, a touch to touch. <laughs> you know, like that. <laughs> that's the best thing that's happened to me since I got Jim Lair to uh, call out bus stations <laughs> okay. like he used to do in his old job as a bus station announcer. Well, what was your What was your family like when you were a kid? Uh, My mother and dad are both Southern. They're from Kentucky. And my dad was a factory worker, and my mom didn't work till I was about 12, and she got a job as a nurse's aide. So they were blue-collar. I went to to Kentucky every summer, and the rest of the year I lived in inner-city Detroit in a predominantly black neighborhood. And then I'd go to Kentucky, and it would be like, you know, a real culture clash, culture change, culture shock is the word, isn't it? Um. What was, what about it? What what, what was different? Well, er, I mean, everything from the way the racially how people behaved, uh, it, it was diametrically opposite. You know, going to rural Kentucky in the forties and fifties, and going and living in inner city Detroit, and also on a farm, you get to see animals copulating and things like that. You didn't <laughs> see a lot of that in the, in Detroit. <laughs> I mean, on the street. <laughs> When did you decide that you that you actually could pursue a life as an artist and that could be your life life? Um, I think uh, I think when I probably realized that I I tried to be I, I, I at one point in college I I enrolled in pre med but I could not I could never have been a doctor and I would not have had the brain for it at all. I think that was one awakening point where I thought, oh, God, I can't do this. These, all the stuff that's demanded, you know, mathematically and computing all these things. And it just wasn't up my alley. So I um, – and I got into a college show. I mean, I'd always put on shows all my life as a kid, but didn't think that's what people did to make a living. You know, I was a blue-collar kid. You, you, It just doesn't dawn on you that that's something that people – actually do and get away with, you know, as and earn a living. So I, um, but when I got in this college show, I was such a hit. People just were carrying on so much. I, I said, I'm going to, when midterms were over, I said, I'm going to go to New York and try to get, be an actor. 
And I mean, that is a grand vision based on a successful college review sketch. Well, you know, I hate to say it, Jesse, but I just felt like I was born to it. <laughs> As I was sitting up there on stage, I thought, well, this is just so much fun. I just, I don't know why I didn't do this before. I, let's talk a little bit about the very start of your acting career in the um, in the mid-60s in New York. And I actually have a clip of uh, a commercial. Um, and I, I, this commercial doesn't need that much setting up other than to say that uh, it's just you on screen. You look spectacular, by the way. And uh, the screen is filling with water and agitating, <laughs> not yeah. unlike a washing machine. And how to get rid of dirty stains and put dazzle where the stain was. I use New All now with bleach, borax, and brighteners. Watch. The bleach and borax lift out the stains. Brighteners splash on dazzle. That was quite a hard commercial because they... Uh, like 300 gallons of water would rush in in like a second, uh, like a one second or two seconds. You were you were really underwater. I wasn't under. I was up to my neck. Well, yeah. No, I, I saw the commercial. You're. I assumed that it was some sort of visual effect. No. Well, the taking the stains was a visual effect, and that they they had to take it off the air eventually because it was considered untruthful. <laughs> <laughs> because I, you know, I I agitated my upper body in this big tank of water. You didn't know I was in the tank at was first. Was the water cold? Yeah, it was cold, and it was, and it would. It took days to shoot because they tried everything: cement booties, because I it would knock <laughs> Could me you over. Kept floating. No, it would oh just no! Not, it would not. The water was so rushed and so big, it would knock you over. So like the first day, it just kept knocking me, and then it'd have to dry me off and redo my hair, and. uh all that stuff. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest this week is the legend, Lily Tomlin. We talked in 2013. What, what, was, that, was that one of the first uh, big professional gigs that you booked? Oh, yeah. I think I, the first, the actual first one was a Vicks Vapo Rub. That commercial changed my life because I had, uh, that was 66, and I had uh, been hired onto the uh, uh, a return of the Gary Moore show. Gary Moore uh, was making a comeback on CBS, and I only did three episodes, and they fired me. And then, um, so I went back to uh, typing. Why, why did you get fired? Oh, probably because I was sort of um, combative about material. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wasn't combative in a you know a hateful way. I just I'd say, no, no, we can't do this. This is too old fashioned, or. This is I just didn't think it was funny or hip or anything. You actually got offered a part on Laugh-In, which was by that by the time you were offered the part was a, already a big huge national hit. Right. And turned it down because you wanted to take a hipper job, right? Yeah, I wanted a music scene. I took music scene on ABC, which was like a contemporary hit parade uh whereby um there was a band of kids, five or six kids, David Steinberg was the leader and he was already sort of known. 
and we were supposed to do comedy and introduce the songs, but we had we had concerts with Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin. I, and I just watched them with Sly and the Family Stone. It was absolutely amazing. Yeah. It was a, and it was a real concert. It wasn't a lip sync either. No, no, it was great. We were we thought we were just really hot stuff, and uh, and the show was. But parents, they didn't. This was nineteen. What did I say? Now that well, that wait a minute. This I'm is like nineteen sixty nine. I think. Yeah, that's sixty nine. Because then I went to laugh, and I the offer was still there, so I went to laugh in mid season because. Music scene got taken off the air. I want to play a clip from music scene. And this is a character that I, I if I'm not mistaken, you did uh, in your audition for Laugh-In. Um, it's called Lucille the Rubber Freak. Yeah, but I'm not doing it in character. The sh- music scene wa- didn't <laughs> want me to do character because they said people won't know who you are. In those days, they if people did multiple characters, they said the audience gets confused. So I had to kind of do it as myself. Well, I think it's pretty hilarious. So yeah, well, it's a good bit. Let's take a listen. Hi, my name is Lily Tomlin. I'm a rubber freak. <laughs> I can say it now. Of course, there was a time when I couldn't. When I look back on it all, I I think it started with rubber bands. I wasn't actually swallowing them in those days. I, I just sort of munched on them. Sometimes I'd take one and stretch it from one eye tooth to the other and sort of twang it. I told myself I was being creative. It was just a relaxing pastime. Then one day I sat down to write a lyric for one especially good tune I twanged. I... <laughs> that is a, that's a really hilarious bit. I think um, ahead of its time in its parody of the confessional. Yeah. Um, when you went to Laugh-In, Laugh-In is, was, is an interesting show in the history of comedy because it is a really interesting mix of this kind of new thing that was going on because it was, you know, when you went there, it was 1969 and like the most old fashioned thing that could possibly exist. Um, Like, you know, everything is psychedelic flowers and being silly. But on the other hand, um, on on the other hand, it feels like a vaudeville act. Yeah. But what did you think of the show when, when you, when you started on it? Well, um, I was probably full of myself, so I, I couldn't say that was too cool, but I because I had because I had a decided sensibility, comedy sensibility that I you couldn't push me off of sort. You know, I it's like I could easily uh, reject something because it was just it I would be embarrassed to do it. I just if it made me laugh, if it made if it was interesting to me, that's that would be the the I guess the the watermark, but I wanted it to be about something, something I wanted it to be, you know, satirical and, or have something to say about something or be moving about something or, uh, just outrageously funny. Like the rubber freak was for me, all the controversy about what's addictive and what's an acceptable addiction and what isn't. And even so far as what's, you know, what's an acceptable sexual orientation, you know, because she says at the end, I'm not, I'm no longer a woman obsessed with an unnatural craving. I'm just another normal, socially acceptable alcoholic. Uh, so it was really, it was, it was a wonderful turn on the con- on the confessional and so on. But I felt it had other stuff too. I, I want to play a clip from you on Laughing, and your character Ernestine uh, was an immediate smash monster hit. Yeah, she on was. The show. Um, she is a telephone operator. 
Um, and, and in this sketch, she is calling a customer who, who has unpaid bills. Ringy dingy. Two ringy dingy. Oh, a gracious good afternoon, Mr. Vito. I'm Miss Tomlin, your representative from the telephone company. And you owe us a balance of $23.64. When, when may we expect payment? It's, it's for three calls to Topeka, Kansas. You don't know anyone in Topeka, Kansas? Well, Mr. Beetle, that's, be that's beside the point. Now, when may we expect payment? When, when, when what freezes over? No, no, Mr. Beetle, you are not dealing with just anyone's fool. I am a high school graduate. What what was it like? I, I I know you were in production on the show for a while before. Yeah, I was. I went in. I started. I guess like in October, and then I didn't air until the last show of December. So what was it like when that happened? And then all of a sudden, you were you were like a famous person. Yeah, I, well, Ernestine was famous at least. Uh, it was it was. Uh, you don't quite relate to it. You don't quite get it. Uh, I it aired on a Monday night. I was in New York because I was there doing publicity. For, the, for my entrance into the show, and Monday night it aired, and I saw it, and I first I thought, oh, Ernestine's too big, she's too broad. And then I kept watching, and I thought, no, I said, no, there's something about her that really works. She's There's something real about her. Um, and then I went to the theater the next night, so I wasn't anywhere near friends or anything, and we didn't have email and stuff like that, and I was in a hotel, so I didn't really get phone calls that I can recall. But the next night at the theater... I'm waiting outside for some friends to come, and I know people start walking up and down past me and looking and uh, decidedly looking at me. And it was so uncomfortable, and I thought, oh, my God. Uh, and then I began to – and so I didn't really – I didn't want to have to deal with it because I thought it was uh, it was just too embarrassing. But gradually over to then you then people get so they'd be so disappointed if you said it's not me they that you start to just embrace it. You know, and my mother got such a kick out of it. My dad, my dad particularly, and he died shortly after that. He died in 1970. So, but oh, he was so tickled when I was on laughing because it was such a big show, and uh, and he just really enjoyed it. You know, he'd tell everybody, "Who do you think this is?" And people would say, "Well, I guess it's your daughter," <laughs> and he'd say, "Yeah, you're damn right." We were at a place, and they were living in Fort Wayne, Indiana, then, and we went to a place to have dinner. You know, like a just a tavern-like kind of place. And uh, and my dad, and there was a boy and a girl playing piano and singing. They were, had come up from Chicago or something, or down to from Chicago, and and they were coming over saying, "Is there anything we can play for you, Miss Tomlin?" And uh, and and uh, my dad say, "Son, do you know Froggy went a courting?" <laughs> <laughs> And then he says, and the boy says, I don't know that song. My father goes, Froggy won a court and a hum, a hum. So then my dad says, babe, get up and sing a song. And I said, daddy, I don't want, please don't make me sing. He said, baby, you got to get up and sing a song for the people. <laughs> and I said, daddy, I can't do it. Don't make me sing. And he says, babe, you got to learn how to be popular. And I think he I, knew more about it than I did. I think for for a lot of people uh, that I talk to, there is really like a powerful moment in whatever is the thing that they do that means something to their parents. Like they will often have been working for 10 years oh, yeah. and sometimes even have been successful. Um, but then when they do something that that their parents get, it's a very powerful 
it's a very powerful it, it, affirmation it really, it, of somehow this life that's the moment that you're that's the moment of your being catapulted into something recognizable like a lot of my family who are all from Kentucky they didn't really kind of acknowledge me overly until I did the Glenn Campbell show <laughs> I guess start on Glenn Campbell and then they were just all over the moon <laughs> um Let's take a listen to one more character from Laugh-In. Um, this is e- Edith Ann. She's a five-and-a-half-year-old, and I think uh, folks who know the character will immediately picture it. Um, it's you, normal-sized you, sitting in an enormous, enormous rocket chair. And, and in this bit, uh, you're reading a story you've written, or your Edith Ann is. Once upon a time... Yesterday, I went out into the backyard to play, but I fell down instead. And I began to cry. And I went inside to tell Barbara that I fell down, and she said, how did it happen? And I just shrugged my shoulders, because it was one of them accidents. You don't know how they happen. And then she said, stop crying, Edith. You are a big crybaby. And then my feelings was hurt. And she put a Band-Aid on my knee, but it didn't help, because you cannot put a Band-Aid on your feelings. And then Buster, my dog, came in. And then he went back out, because he cannot stand to see me cry. And then he was thirsty, and his doggy bowl was in the kitchen, so I had to get up and let him in, and I limped to the door. Because my knee was weak, and it couldn't support me, and I fell down. Plus, I had dropped some butter on the floor at breakfast. And I just laid there, and I almost fainted. And then I came to... And then I got up and I started to write this story, but it was so sad I almost started to cry again. But I will not, because it will not do no good. And then Barbara will say I was a crybaby, which I can prove I am not by that second fall, the end. I I read somewhere something about you saying that you developed this character specifically because you wanted to do a kid character. Well, why did you want to do a kid character? Well, as an actor, you just want to do a range of people, you know, just like I did men later and I've done teenagers. And I, I always was looking for a, another culture type to do just because it's it makes your own repertoire richer. You can make more con- – you can comment on more things. And There's something so sweet about her. I know. I love Edith so much. Do you, do you find yourself um, – uh, it's funny like i since since i've had a kid i've i've talked to people about this experience that you have that is cliched which is seeing the world through a child's eyes and um i feel even stupid just saying it out loud into a microphone but um it is actual and i i wonder if you ever had that experience with this character that because you were writing for and performing this character you sort of had an opportunity to see the world in an in an alternate way. Well, I I, I so much used uh, my own life. You know, I used my baby brother, and then I just put Edith in the middle. I made an older sister, so that I used all the stuff that that had occurred between my brother and me as an older sister and a baby brother. And then Edith, she had, she did to the baby brother what I did, and and Mary, and the older sister did to Edith 
what I what I did also. <laughs> Wait, it's all cockeyed, but nonetheless, Edith hey, was we got in the it. middle. No, we're on you it. Know. Yeah, yeah, we're on board. And I used all this stuff with uh, my dad. And then, of course, Jane, that's the first thing I worked on with Jane. Uh, so that's what I was about to ask you. Was uh, my Edith album because Jane had written a thing, first thing she'd ever written that was material because she wanted to be a songwriter. And she'd written a, a long song. Kind of like, I mean, now they do songs like American Pie and like a very long form song. And she'd written this song about a kid in Harlem and uh, and her, uh, it called Traffic Jam of Life. And her agent at that time said, why don't you turn it into a screenplay for television? You know, because a lot of stuff they were uh, buying for after after school, after school. Yeah, after school specials. On CBS, right. And she wrote JT and... It got so much critical attention that they ran, they ran it every year for like 25 years at Holiday. And I saw it during one of those runs, and it was so wonderful in terms of this kid. And so it was tender and edgy and sad and funny, and every word was, I mean, every sentence, it was like an aphorism almost, and yet was totally naturalistic, totally moved character and plot, and, and was... Uh, just essenced, and it's always what I look for in a monologue. How can you create a culture type in three or four minutes and say something and fill it and and be entertaining and contentful at the it, same time? It's interesting to me that you say that because I think for most comics, and I know a lot of comics, many, many comics have been on the show, their goal is to get as many laughs as they can. And they have... Not that they don't have other vision for it or they don't want to have social commentary or they don't want to whatever. But number one on the list is always most and most powerful laughs. <laughs> and that was like fifth on the list of things that you just said that that you wanted to bring Jane Wagner into your life for. And you, it's not something that you talk, you've talked about in terms of creating your characters when, when we've talked just now. Well, um, you have to be entertaining, at least, even if it's tra- if it's a, a tragedy. I mean, you have to somehow create the essence in such a way that people are fa- interested or they're drawn in. So, um, I, yeah, well, laughs are not are not the first objective. That's true. But if you hit it right, it will be it will be funny, or it will have enough humor in it that that it's entertaining on that level. Um. And I watched you laughing. You laughed at the silly stuff. Oh, I, I'm not saying no, it's not I funny. Saw, no, I'm saying, you, but you laugh at, like a broad audience might not really laugh at, like in the rubber freak, you were saying like an especially good two-night two twanged. I mean, that's <laughs> just kind of ridiculous, you know, wonderfully ridiculous. And um, so uh, I, I don't even know where I'm going with this, but uh, Jane is a wonderful writer. I mean, extraordinary writer. And... You know, and I'm kind of a potch gear, and I'll work on it and pitch and work on it and do something, get up and try it. And uh, and she always brought a much higher verbal level to a pe- to the pieces pieces that I began to do later, like the search and the two Broadway shows we did. And the the two of you have been together romantically since the beginning of the '70s, which is like forty some years now. It'd be forty, yeah, forty two years, March thirty first, which is amazing. Congratulations. Um, and I wonder if it was weird for you, um, especially in the 70s and, and into the 80s, that here you were working with this woman and living with her and, like, going to meetings together and whatever, uh, you know, just like living your life. 
in many ways like uh, you know just just as you would but at the same time it was just so not a topic of conversation that two women would be together that you were in a funny way also closeted by almost by circumstance uh to some extent uh you know because just because of the culture and the time the time of it and uh but not with anybody we knew uh, but we were doing specials at, uh, around that time, too, at CBS and ABC. And I'd even have writers who were good friends of ours who worked with us every day. And one of them said to me one morning, you know, maybe you and Jane should come to work in different cars. <laughs> and I said, well, no, we're not going to do that. And she said, well, people are talking. And I said, well, they just have to talk. You know, it, it's not like I was afraid of it. Um I was more protective of my my mother, who was more Christian and fundamentalist, because uh, while my mother could uh, tolerate the uh, the existence of us, my brother and me, I she, I don't know that she there's an old there's a short story by Marcella May called uh, "State of Grace," and in it I it's you know it's so true of so many humans. Then the this little guy who's very pious and he gets a halo before he dies. And his wife is just horrified because it makes them conspicuous. And she and she says, and the writer says she preferred the approval of her concierge over her creator. <laughs> and so I'm just saying that uh, that kind of thing always. I knew it was uh, hard for my mother because her family, you know, that generation, my my generation, uh, my cousins and everything, the offspring of all those aunts and uncles, they're much more liberally minded. But that older generation, I mean, my mother died at 91. That was eight years ago. So all of our relatives, I mean, it was, and it's Southern too, that whole Southern life, uh, and so much of it is Bible-based. It's very difficult for them to be, to have a broader view of anything. Did did you and Jane ever like discuss whether at some point you should come out in a big deal type way and become uh, celebrity lesbians? <laughs> well, um, this is all this is old news. I hate, but I'll tell it. Um, in uh, it was always uh, it was always there lurking in the background. People were interested, but particularly in the seventies, I think journalists tried to protect you especially if they had regard for you i mean as artists or something they would they were just like i i was like in 75 we got a phone call we were shoot, working on one of our albums actually and time wanted to do a cover story on being gay uh and they they asked my publicist to add, publicist if i would take the cover of time and come out in that big way see you know ellen didn't come out till 20 years later in 95, and, and even that was tough on her. So 75, I was more like, it wasn't because I was doing anything particularly that they were going to exploit. It was just me being gay is what they were going to exploit in our relationship. Uh, so I I was kind of, I was torn because I, I thought it was important politically in some ways. Um, but I also was a little offended on an uh, on a artistic level that... I would trade the cover for my personal life, you know, and uh, instead I we put a piece on the album, which was uh, the header. You know, it's all it, the album was about being famous. It was called Modern Scream, 
and I was supposed to be being interviewed by a magazine interviewer. And at one point, she's she so she's and I just done Nashville, and she interviews me about what was it like, you know, Lily, what was it like to see yourself uh, on the big screen making love to a man? And I said, you know, I've seen these women all my life. I know how they walk. <laughs> I know how they talk. And I just did a we did a flip actually on all the interviews that uh, Cliff Gorman had done for Boys in the Band because he was straight. And it was risky for him to take that role and in terms of the audience. And he, so all we just flipped his interviews, basically. I hate to tell that to Cliff now. But, um, <laughs> and, uh, and I, and Vito Russo was a great friend of mine who was uh, a gay activist and who's, and journalist who's now died. Uh, and when we called Rebeat and we all talked about it and we thought that was a good way to answer Time magazine to put it on the album. Of course, nobody ever said a damn word about it or anything, and it was pretty funny. Yeah. But um, but that's been the story of my life. It's just like uh, something else. Oh, like when I hitchhiked to Detroit, I'm to Chicago. The other kids got expelled, and they just overlooked me. We'll have more with Lily Tomlin after a short break. Still to come, I'm going to play some tape of Lily Tomlin berating director David O. Russell. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and this message comes from 2020, where creatives get inspiring, authentic stock photos. Unlike traditional staged stock photos, 2020 has millions of real-world images your audience will actually engage with, all under a simple royalty-free license. Today, 2020 is offering Bullseye listeners a seven-day free trial of five photos. Monthly subscription begins after seven days. To start your trial, go to twenty20.com slash bullseye. Hey there, Paula Poundstone here. When you're done listening to this podcast, check out my new show, Live from the Poundstone Institute. I mean, you could try listening to this show and my show at the same time, but that might drive you insane. Find Live from the Poundstone Institute on Apple Podcasts or the NPR One app. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. In just a second, more of my conversation with Lily Tomlin. But first, let's take a look at Pop Rocket. That's our sister show here at Max Fun, kind of a chattier version of Bullseye. Every week, you get a panel discussion about popular culture that is brilliant, fascinating, and genuinely funny. Our host is Guy Branham. He's a stand-up. He hosts True TV's talk show, The Game Show, which is hilarious. Hey, Guy, what's popping on Pop Rocket this week? Hey, Jesse. This week we are going to be talking about Girls Trip. It is a splash. It is a sensation. Tiffany Haddish is a star. Regina Hall can open a movie. We are all very excited. Sounds like a plan to me, Guy. Pop Rocket. Get it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Lily Tomlin. She's one of the greatest American comics ever. We taped this interview in 2013. I, I want to f- fast forward to the past couple of years real quick. I was so happy when you showed up on one of my favorite shows. Oh, me too. Eastbound and Down. Yeah. Um, and you played Kenny Powers, the protagonist's mom. And Kenny Powers, the main character of Eastbound and Down, for folks who haven't seen it, is a sort of disgraced former Major League Baseball player, a man with boundless self-regard. I mean, <laughs> insane self-regard and a, and a majestic mullet and 
um, just a very vulgar way of being in the world, and a little bit of sweetness in this, at the very center of his heart. Um, and you played his mother, the place where he came from. We have a little scene. This is, I think, this might be the first scene that we see you on the show. Um, you are you're bowling with uh, uh, your friend, uh, who is your bowling partner here. So why don't you decide, Tammy? You want me to win by points or disqualification? Well, whatever. I've got more important in my life than arguing with your dumbass. My famous baseball player son is coming for a visit with his new baby. And would this be the son that got bested doing steroids and had that prostitution scandal? <laughs> what I like about that character is... But I is, gave her a good punch, didn't I? Yeah, you sure did. <laughs> Sucker punched her. <laughs> what I like about that character is because you're the mother of this uh, of this human nightmare, Kim, Kenny Powers, you... You get to do two things at the same time. And in a way, it's similar to what you do in admission, although um, <laughs> the morality of it maybe is different. But the, you get to be maternal and loving and just really sweet and human. And then you also just get to be completely ridiculous, like completely <laughs> outrageous, punch people, you know, like just whatever. Well, for my boy. Yeah. <laughs> I have to defend my son. Had you, had you seen the show when 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 the part came well, along? Well, here's the thing. I was I'm embarrassed to say I didn't even know about the show, and when I got the bid, I so I watched the first two years, and I just fell in love with you know Danny McBride and that character, and so I was just delighted. I, I had so much damn fun doing that show, and I was just. I keep hoping it. I, th- I thought they were going to do a fourth season. I was hoping that I would get to do another stint as, as his mother, <laughs> because it's really fun, you know. I can I can only imagine, and I I imagine that, and it, they're fun to work with. Those guys, they're really fun. The, the, I imagine that the uh, that there's something similar in in your role in admission, which is your character in on in admission is a mom so you get to do some mom stuff like you get to show some love and be kind but you also get to just be outrageous a little bit yeah well for me i mean taking that role i love that uh, role when it was offered to me because um i love you know someone at that point in her life a, a feminist my age who was noted notable at some point wrote a notable book uh, celebrated, and then of course that fame withers a bit. Time moves on, decades pass, and she's created this mythology around herself because she was so idealistic and so committed to the feminist doctrine, and she's even imposed it on her daughter and created this w- this wedge between them. So this overlay of admission uh, for everybody in the in the play was. Uh, so important you know the the slug line even is let someone in have you 40 years on from uh from the peak of your idealism when you were you know turning down laughing and stuff like that um (laughs) and phone commercials yeah how, how do you how do you regard that you as as the you that you are now um well i probably um i don't regret that i mean 
that that was acted that's totally authentic it act, I acted out of you know I burst in when I heard that they'd offered me a lot of money to do phone phone company commercials I burst into tears because I thought that totally negated me as a satirist or as a, anybody making a comment on anything I thought they think that money that I'll, you know, so it was never a quite, I didn't have to suffer over it or turmoil. Oh, God, I want the money. But, you know, I had no trouble turning it down at that moment. Uh, whether I would have taken it later in life, I can't be sure because it hasn't been offered. But um, I even went so far as to do that special, Lily Sold Out, about going to Vegas for the money because. Is that the one where you get fired out of the cannon? Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> So and I do finally take it. I convince myself I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it for uh, political reasons. You know what better place to do a a piece? I'm going to do my Seven Ages of a Woman as my nightclub act. And of course, <laughs> I totally corrupted into a big Vegas act, like Anne Margaret or Cher. There's there's one thing that I feel like I I can't let the interview pass without discussing, and I I feel a little bit ridiculous because I have let the interview pass. Without discussing, for example, your Oscar-nominated role in Nashville, but there is uh, some years ago this video clip of you um, having a disagreement with director David, oh, o. David Russell sure. on the set of *I Heart Huckabees* was released on the internet. It was not the first public conflict with director David O. Russell, brilliant director, brilliant, and David I love o. Russell. him. Um, I'm I'm gonna play I'm gonna play a little bit. Oh, of it. can you play the language? Well, we'll beep it out or, or okay. whatever. That's why we spent five and five or six hours doing something else. No! Damn it! You it up! Damn you! Now get straight out and help. If you can't if you can't help them, help me. So what was going on? I this was like this was totally amazing to me. I've 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 loved all of David O. Russell's movies and all of your work. And David O. Russell has a reputation for unusual message, methods, which he burnished in the course of making this film. Um, what, what was going on? Oh, well, I was uh, – um, well, we were doing a scene in a car that later didn't make it into the movie because it kind of hadn't – it was – the movie, you know, he's a very um, mercurial, wonderful, inspired guy. And – that whole during that whole, the making of that movie, he was in the habit of like lying on a chaise, <laughs> sometimes in his, in his in his shorts, his boxer shorts, with a megaphone yelling at us, you know, to do this or do that. And it was hot, and we'd been in the car for all day before lunch, and and nothing was going right. It was just all this and that and whatever. Isabel Hopper and Dustin and Hoffman and I were in the front seat, and Naomi Watts and Mark Wahlberg were in the back seat, and. I was completely lost. I and so I at lunch I said to David, David, let's look at the video and tell me what's you see working, what's working in this scene, because everybody was playing it differently. And uh, Dustin had turned to me at one point and he said, "I'm going to play this like Stan Laurel." Well, it was a it was a movie with a mixed tone. It was. If it had a weakness, and I it adored, was. Oh, I didn't see. I didn't think it had a weakness at all. I I love the movie so much, but here, but on this particular day. And then I barely got – then all my coverage had – I had but not been covered. I was just, you know, peripheral all that morning. So I had a good chance to find out what would work if he would help me. And as soon as I started speaking on my cue, he started yelling at me saying, you know, come on, Tomlin. The, I don't know what he was saying. He was berating me about something. And I just flipped out on the first go-round. 
Would you would you go back and do another movie with David Russell oh, if he gave you the chance? Yes, absolutely. We made up two minutes later. I mean, it's not <laughs> like anything. I mean, we're we're temper. We're you know we were we were frazzled and hot tempered, and it was a hot day, and you know I and I when it happened, I was doing an interview with the Miami Herald in, in the morning, and they said, "What do you think about the YouTube video?" And I said, "Well, I don't know," because it was four years after the movie. I said, what is it? And I knew that the video existed because I'd heard agents were look, had looked at it over the years. <laughs> <laughs> but I, so then the guy said, he said, the, he said, it's from Huckabee's. And I said, oh, I said, well, is it the car or is it the office? <laughs> and he said, both of them. Well, it's like one of the all-time great things. I don't know if you've ever heard that, that sound, that video of uh, or that audio recording of Paul Anka uh, yelling at his band. And he says... Oh, I'm going to slice. And when I slice, I slice like a f***ing hammer. <laughs> no, but we're so goofy and so embarrassed. Uh, and I said, I, I said, I'm sure David, whatever the video, because I had not seen it. I said, well, whatever it is, what can I say about it? I, I did it. You know, there's nothing more to say. And I said, I, I imagine David and I are both a little chagrined that we that it got caught on tape and then distributed. Well, Lily, I've taken up far too much of your time, but thank you so much for joining me on Bullseye. Thank you. Uh, Well, I enjoyed it, too, but God knows what I've said. (laughs) Lily Tomlin from 2013. Catch her on Netflix's Grace and Frankie, if you haven't already seen it. She and Jane Fonda are both fantastic in it. She's also still doing live shows. We'll have a link to her upcoming dates on our website. Just go to the Bullseye page on MaximumFun.org. And if you're wondering, and I know you are, yes, when she came to see us, Lily Tomlin folded herself into our children's outside-of-a-supermarket rocket ship ride and demanded that we plug it in. It was fantastic. Every week, we like to wrap up with a recommendation from me. It's the outshot. There are a lot of hip-hop records about bravado. There are fewer about fear. On Chance the Rapper's mixtape, Acid Rap, there's a song called Paranoia. I love the whole tape, but paranoia shakes me every time I hear it. Some context. In most cities, the violence that rose up around the crack epidemic of the 1980s and 90s has mostly subsided. Gentrification has set in in a lot of those places. I know the neighborhood I grew up in, the Mission in San Francisco, is basically unrecognizable to me when I go home to visit my mom. All the dealers on the corners have been replaced by boutiques. Things are different in Chicago, or parts of Chicago anyway. Some bits of town have improved a lot. They're full of comfortable people and fancy coffee. But wide swaths of the town are as bad as ever, sometimes worse. And it can feel like the outside doesn't even care to bother looking in. That's where this song comes from. So here's the question to start. Can Chance change anything about that? Can anyone? Move to the neighborhood. I bet they don't stay for good. Watch. Somebody will steal daddy's rollie. We'll call it the neighborhood. Watch. Pray for a safer hood. When my paper good, watch. Captain Saberhood. Hood Savior. Baby boy. Still getting ID for swishers. Mama still watch my clothes. Still with the same money militia. Mama still watch my pros. Trapped in the middle of the map with a little bitty rock and a little bit of rap. 
That with a little Rebby knack and a little Needish Mac and like little Rebby really Jack. Blowing on my lips With the sun in my eyes And my gun on my hip Paranoia on my mind Got my mind on the fritz But a lot of niggas looking dying So my nine with this dish I've been riding around With my blood on my lips With the sun in my eyes And my gun on my hip Paranoia Beat feels like it's one note off Unresolved It never settles You can't slip into the song You have to open your ears to it It's like Brecht or something Here comes the real question. Does anyone even want to change anything about this situation? Do they even bother to see the pain? They murking kids. They murder kids here. Why you think they don't talk about it? They deserted us here. Where the fuck is Matt Lauer at? Somebody get Katie Couric in here. Probably scared of all the refugees. Look like we had a fucking hurricane here. Are we shooting whether it's dark or not? I mean, the days is pretty dark a lot. Down here, it's easier to find a gun than it is to find a parking spot. No love for the opposition, specifically a cop position, because they've never been in opposition, getting violations from the nation, correlating you I remember the junkie who broke into my house and held a knife to my mom. I remember the cold looks on the street and gunshots outside the window. I remember sitting in bed at night and wondering whether the sound I heard was fireworks or something else. When you're in that situation, you have to be tough and brave and you can't show your fear. I just stood up straight and pretended like those things didn't terrify me. Once I got jumped in, didn't even tell my parents. I know you scared. You should ask us if we scared too. I know you scared. Me too. The truth is, I was lucky. I was white. I was big. I had a scholarship to a private school. Others aren't. If you was there And we just knew you cared too It just got warm out I've been warm out I hope that it's storming in the morning I hope that it's pouring out I hate crowded beaches I hate the sound of fireworks And I find what's worse between knowing it's over and dying first Cause everybody dies in the summer When I say goodbyes, tell them while it's spring Everybody's dying in the summer So pray to God for a little more spring Really, Chance isn't even asking for changes. He's asking for a connection. He's asking not to be invisible. He's asking for someone to acknowledge that he and his friends and his family and the folks in his neighborhood are people who matter and feel. He wants to be heard when he says that he's afraid. And that's a pretty brave thing to say. That's my outshot. I know you scared. You should ask us if we scared too. If you was there. And we just knew you cared too. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Our show is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. Great news, water levels were starting to get a little low in the park, thanks to the summer heat, but they were refilling it with an enormous hose cannon. Uh, It's a pretty spectacular display from up here in World Headquarters. So thanks to the L.A. Parks and Recreation Department for keeping things wet. 
The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Kevin Ferguson, he had help from Christian Duenas. Our production fellows at Maximum Fun are Kara Hart and Nick Liao. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme was recorded by the Go Team, provided to us by Memphis Industries Records. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, they are all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org or find our YouTube page. And while you're at it, check out the Bullseye page on Facebook. It's at Facebook.com slash Bullseye with Jesse Thorne or just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. We're sharing interviews. We're giving you sneak peeks at upcoming Bullseye guests. Got some dumb stuff from the Internet and some news about culture around the world. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.